Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics and this week it's just me and Helen. And we're going to talk about Brexit, second referendum, the fate of Theresa May and anything else we can get to. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. So Helen, this is a rare opportunity for you and me to talk about these things without anyone else interrupting. Uh, let's see how, how we get on. Let's start with Theresa May. So my sense on this podcast, we keep changing our minds about things, but this isn't our fault. So since she's been Prime Minister, she's been a genius, a blunderer, a fool, a dogged, determined Brexiteer. Survivor. A survivor. And now, and I just don't quite get what's driving it at this moment. There are lots of things that could be driving it. She seems to have gone from being the person who had secured her position just a few weeks ago to someone who can't survive for much longer. And something's happened, and no one's telling us exactly what's happened. It's clearly going on inside the Conservative Party. It's going on inside the government. You hear these stories about people having finally run out of patience with her indecisiveness, her unresponsiveness, her inability to communicate. These things were all known about her last year during the last bout of She Can't Survive, and then she delivered something on Brexit. So what is driving this? I'm in some sense as mystified as you, but I think there were two at least plausible hypotheses of what's going on. The first of them is about her and it is about her style of leadership and that when it delivers something, for example, the first stage agreement before Christmas, then the doubts, and I think that actually more than doubts, there's part of the party that actually has some contempt for her, are put back in the box. But it, her getting past those problems relies on her having episodes of success and I think what's striking this time is, is it's not that long since the last episode. Exactly, it's kind of weeks. But I think if you say what was the trigger, I think the trigger was Philip Hammond. I think it was what he said at Davos, where he basically broke with what has been the government's policy and seemed to suggest that he would prefer for Britain to stay in the customs union. So what's different in some sense this time around than before the the last episode of crisis for her leadership, so to speak, is is that the attacks are coming from the Leavers rather than from the Remainers. Because the other story that came out of Davos was that Angela Merkel laughed at yeah. her in this kind of off-the-record off, off briefing with German journalists, where I didn't even know this, apparently. She has these briefings where she impersonates foreign leaders and tells jokes and has them all rolling around in hilarity in this time. And I would have thought that would have shored up her position because surely part of the point of being a Conservative Party is you don't like... German leaders laughing at you. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that was particularly instrumental in what was going on, but I think the Hammond thing is significant because I think it fits into the second thing that's been going on, and that is is the resurgence of the Treasury since the election. And I don't think we should forget that Mrs May wanted to sack Philip yeah. Hammond. Well, we'll come on to this because there are quite a few people she wanted to sack, and 
the fact that she didn't sack any of them may lie behind this. Yeah. And do well, do I, the Treasury first. Well, I think that the, the, tr- the Treasury, had, as, as far as we can see, and it's obviously difficult from the outside to see that clearly, these things, that the Treasury was institutionally relatively shut out of the decision-making about Brexit going into the election, that the institutions that mattered within the government were number 10, and the Department for Exiting the European Union. And I think if you want an explanation as to why the parts of the city that are most engaged with the Brexit question in the sense of wanting to make sure that financial services are looked after by staying relatively close to the European Union was actually surprisingly ineffective at making its arguments. It was because their usual point of entry into the decision-making process at the Treasury wasn't there for them because the Treasury was being marginalised. Does it follow from that that it was, because the thing that has happened between the last failure, the last success, and then the current failure was the botched reshuffle, and it clearly was botched. And it was, of all the things that she's done since she became Prime Minister, it was the starkest demonstration of her weakness, not least the ridiculous briefing operation. If you're going to suggest you're going to fire people, you better fire them, because if you don't... So she, by not essentially managing to change her government at all, has left herself now exposed to all of those simmering disputes coming out into the open in which the central dispute is between the Brexiteers and the Treasury. Yes, but I think that the botch reshuffle really needs to be also seen in the context of her style of leadership because actually a lot of reshuffles are botched. I know the communication was bad on this, but a lot of the time... The communication... People always cite the Tony Blair one, which made this one look quite yeah. successful. And so I think that what happens is, is at times when things go badly for her, the underlying critique that significant numbers of people in the parliamentary party and also people around the Conservative Party, donors etc have of her, that she is not a leader, that in some sense that she is, and I think this is true, that she's too introverted to be a leader in present style of democratic politics, that she's not a communicator, she's not a storyteller she doesn't do the things that make people feel better, that feel like the government's got some sense of direction. Now Cameron was kind of good at those things but it came with a whole other pile of Weaknesses, not least some of his decision-making, you know, the essay crisis, Prime Minister. But more people in the political class, at least those who get to the top of the political parties in this country's politics, are, shall we say, in tune with Cameron's style of leadership than they are with May's style of leadership. I think they find it an anathema. So every time the consequences of its weakness are on display, you get quite an intense reaction to it. Now, if you put that then in conjunction with the fact that this resurgence of the Treasury, the fact that Hammond has been able to reassert his political position when he looked like he was politically dead. And then you add in the fact that there are some really quite difficult to resolve questions about what Britain's future economic relationship with the European Union is, then she's in trouble. Now, again, though, she could stabilise the situation. And the one thing that she does have in her favour is, is despite all this, the Conservatives are still polling at 40%-ish in the polls. And that her personal support in terms of national opinion, the poll that was released yesterday suggests something like 70%, or nearly 70%, just wanted to get on and do Brexit. So the, the weaknesses that she has within the political class, let's call it court politics in some sense, are not necessarily the way in which the majority of the electorate perceive her. Because one of the ironies of this on the Cameron style of leadership is the Cameron style, the Blair style, one of the, the terms that was used to deride it was it was based around the grid, you know, the news grid. Every week they would have this grid and you had to fill it. If there was a minute of the news cycle that wasn't filled by your people, then you'd lost the grid. 
And one of the complaints that's been vocalised about Theresa May is that her grid is empty, this weird phrase, which to me is sort of, oh, you know, it's a breath of fresh air. Her grid is empty. Yeah. I presume it's because in these terms, she's getting on with the really difficult things she has to do, which is not grid politics, in a sense. If you're going to do Brexit, it can't be based on week-by-week -week announcements. And we know that there are people in the Conservative Party who recognise that, and yet somehow she's lost control of her ability to project that. I mean, it's almost that thing that the thing that she hasn't been able to do is to project her qualities, which are kind of anti that yeah. Cameron style, the difficulty, of course, is that the Cameron style is about projection. So she's slightly caught on that. But there is something absurd about the Conservative Party that mocked Blair and then yeah. what it disliked about Cameron and Craig Oliver. I mean, that was yeah. the criticism of Craig Oliver, that he just inherited the Blair operation. And May was meant to be the opposite of that. And she is. So they're going to get rid of her. But I think that what that shows is that how far that style had penetrated both parties. I mean, Corbyn obviously doesn't do it either and we now have two political leaders who are doing anti-grid politics I think the, the way before the election that Theresa May compensated for it before things started to go to wrong for her was Nick Timothy, now Nick Timothy obviously posed a, a set of other problems for her some of his policy ideas were obviously not extremely unpopular with parts of the Conservative Party he seemed to control access to her extremely tightly and might, might be putting it charitably but he did provide a narrative for her premiership. It was kind of clear what the main premiership was supposed to be about. It was about delivering Brexit and it was about trying to for the Conservative Party to, and the country's government to concern itself more with the less well off than had been the case during the previous Conservative governments. But now Nick Timothy's not there and she I mean she was a politician who essentially relied on, as far as we can see, two close advisors. She then didn't cultivate media relationships. She doesn't have a media friend. When, when Cameron was in trouble, there was someone who would write an op-ed column for The Times, Finkelstein or Matthew Dancona or somebody like that. She doesn't have anybody who's doing that for her when she's in trouble. She doesn't have anybody who's providing a storytelling language to explain what she's doing. And without it, she's left with her strengths, which are there and in some sense they are quite important in relation to both what needs to be done in relation to Brexit and what's gone before but it comes with a whole bundle of weaknesses that she doesn't know how to in some sense cover up and which the kinds of people who are in the in the party and I mean this in a sort of temperamental personality sense just find her anathema. It is one of the things I like about British politics at the moment which is the fear of losing control of the grid is that the other party will colonise yeah. the grid and I quite like the way as you said <laughs> it's just silence I thought that was what people wanted there, there are whole weeks that go by when neither party seems to be particularly bothered about its public presentation but it turns out people don't like that they get very well maybe well, people I, do like I, I it but politicians saying, the, don't yeah, like yeah, it yeah the politicians don't they like it I mean the, the voters aren't changing their minds no, about anything exactly they, it, uh, there's, and the voters, there's silence so the polls aren't yeah, moving and the, 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 you know, the polls aren't moving and Theresa May looks like she has support among voters that she doesn't have amongst her own Parties, and so. unfortunately, it's the party that will do for her. Let's just so one other thing that comes out of the refresh shuffle, and again, I think it's almost impossible to know this from the outside. But the, the thing that looked to me weakest about the reshuffle was that we were briefed that she was going to move Andrea Leadsom, who in, in some ways is her sort of cartoon enemy in the government. She was the person who could have maybe, in her own mind, still feels should have gone all the way through the leadership election and somehow 
was persuaded. I mean, she made an enormous gaffe, but to back down. So she's got that sort of sense of something having been taken away from her. They clearly don't get on. She's leader of the House of Commons. And she is, at the moment, in Tory party terms, being the one who is pushing hardest on the idea that the party needs to reform its behaviour because too many of its MPs are sexist pigs, basically, which no doubt they are. But a government that's weak and vulnerable and doesn't have a majority and is reliant in votes on very small numbers of people has to be obviously careful about alienating too many of its backbench MPs. And sort of the irony of this, in a way, is that Leadsom looks like she's found a good way to destabilise Theresa May, which is to frighten a lot of Tory MPs into thinking that the current regime is going to leave... And some of them clearly have been exposed by this, and no doubt there are more that could, will be exposed. So the Sunday Times was running a version of this at the weekend, saying that essentially that the central anxiety that's running through the Conservative Party is not about Brexit, it's about Me Too. And that in that uh, contest, it's Andrea Leadsom versus Theresa May. So you got Hammond versus May, she didn't fire him. Now you've got Leadsom versus May. I don't know, is that true? I can't, I, I don't know whether it's true or not. I, I, I think that Me Too is a, certainly a, a problem for the Conservative Party and it's part of what's going on. I'm not so sure about the Andrea Leadsom part of it, partly because May herself is in, I think, in a relatively good position. Yeah, I don't think they in disagree, terms, actually. Of, That's what the yeah, irony In yeah. terms of standing up and saying certain things are not acceptable. She was you know, pretty robust in her language about the story that the Financial Times exposed um, last week. I think that Leadsom has, they don't a, like each has other. a difficulty in terms of being more than a nuisance in the sense that she was a a Brexiteer. Um, she actually, I think, in some respects, had quite a good referendum campaign. But she's not articulating her position in relation to the future at the moment. So if you say, OK, where does she stand on the different positions that the Leavers and the Conservative Party have taken about what the future economic relationship of Britain and the EU should be? I don't know what Leadsom's position is. It may be that I'm not paying enough attention. But she's not clearly carving out a position for herself. So whilst it may be true that there's a, a lot of what's going on is the Me Too fear within the Conservative Party, the way it's being played out in public is, is going to be about Brexit, it's going to continue to be about Brexit. And I don't think that she's a player. So she, this isn't her second chance back into no, being a possible think, successor. To I don't think it is. And I mean, we've got to remember as well is, is that the only reason why she had a chance in the first place was is because of the, the Gove-Johnson fallout. Otherwise, she'd have been insignificant in the fallout of the referendum, despite her relatively good performance during the campaign itself. So let's do Brexit then. So you think that the central division in the party is now between the Treasury and the Treasury is here a proxy also for the city? Actually, I think that bit's a bit more complicated, but I'll come okay. to that. <laughs> right, I'll do the simple version. And clearly there have always been some, for want of a better word, hard Brexiteers who are very worried that the government is going to backtrack on some of its commitments on that front. And there aren't that many people who seem to be adopting a kind of pragmatist, let's see how this plays out, approach, which would be May's approach. I mean, it's part of the problem that she's been squeezed. I mean, her approach might be the most reasonable approach. But there aren't that many people in the Parliamentary Conservative Party who would line up behind a centrist approach on Brexit. I think that is the case and I think that temperamentally and the ways in which she articulates her arguments internally as far as we can see she has taken a position that is somewhere between the position that Gove and Johnson 
taking and the position that Hammond and Amber Rudd is taking. But I do think the provocation on the Brexit side of all this was Hammond because he did step out significantly out of line as to what the government's consistent position has been about leaving the customs union in what he said. And I think one of the things that we talked about before Christmas was the fact that actually Johnson and Gove had been pretty supportive of her over the first stage agreement. Things that they could, in principle, perhaps made quite a lot of political fuss about, they said, no, this is a good basis from which to move to the next stage. I think quite a lot of people were surprised that she was able to hold them on side at the end of last year. But the thing that seems to have set them off, and Jacob Rees-Mogg seems to be the person who's articulated this most strongly, is what Hammond said, because it looks like he is dissenting from what has been the government's policy ever since the Lancaster House speech at the beginning of last year. And although she slapped him down, it wasn't that fierce a slap down, and it took her about 24 hours in order to do it, by which time she'd set off a whole other commotion around her about her leadership. So there is this question then of like, okay, well, is this simply Hammond's view? What's the Treasury's view in all this? And I think what's really, in some sense, quite striking about this episode that's happened in her crisis of her leadership in relation to Brexit is that actually, if you look at the external and domestic conditions outside the Conservative Parliamentary Party in which this moment is happening, that actually things were kind of going favourably for her is that it is reasonably clear now that there's significant sections of the city that are concerned, actually, about any arrangement that keeps Britain in the single market or in close regulatory alignment with it, that they think greater risk actually lies with being regulated from within the single market without having any influence over it than actually losing the market share. Now, the city's position has never been united on this. Probably about two-thirds of the city firms were in favour of Remain and about a third of them were Leave. And the big proponents of Remain during the referendum campaign in the city were the American investment banks who make a lot of noise but aren't necessarily, in terms of the city itself, where the centre of gravity is. So this isn't a straightforward issue because the city is divided. And I think that there is a perfectly legitimate and probably, in fact, not just probably necessary debate to be had about where the relative advantages and disadvantages lie for the British economy in terms of keeping regulatorily close to the single market or moving away from it. That what Hammond did, though, was to throw something in that is really problematic for the leavers in terms of leaving the customs union, because for them, and particularly for Johnson and Rees-Mogg, I think, is, is they see the potential for Brexit to be a transformative economic act. And the crucial element of that is being able to negotiate trade agreements independently with third countries and staying in the customs union rules that out. So you can make an argument for Brexit that's largely defensive in the sense that saying, look, Britain has to get out from something that's inherently problematic, the consequences of the Eurozone for the future of the the European Union, or you can say that actually the British economy's got the chance to regenerate itself by having an independent trade policy, and Johnson wants to be in the second of those camps and wants to be able to tell an optimistic story about what Brexit is about, and, and Hammond's, is, real, Hammond's position says, forget that. And is May in the first of those camps? I think she's a bit more in the first of those camps, And yes. that's, then that's yeah. the smallest camp. Yeah. So on the Treasury, 
because the other person that Hammond then is a proxy for is George Osborne. And presumably within the Treasury, you change the ministers, but there's deep sort of institutional continuity. And there is presumably such a thing as a sort of Treasury mindset around this Mm. that transfers from Osborne through to Hammond. I mean, not by no means do all the... It's not like America. The personnel don't all change. And also, I think that Hammond was not necessarily a political protege of Osborne, but they were clearly close. So what's the end game for Hammond and Osborne? Is it just to get rid of Theresa May and start again? Is it to... We'll come on to the second referendum question, but is it to block Brexit? Uh, I don't think it's to... It's obviously to get rid of... We we know what George Osborne said about Theresa May. He doesn't want her around. I think they want... uh, Certainly, Osborne wants Theresa May out without a shadow of a doubt. I I suspect that Hammond may well... uh, There's less clear evidence that that's the case. He knows he's not a potential successor. I think that the problem that they face is, is like one, if you like, solution, potential solution or apparent solution to the, the Treasury view, if we can call it that, is to say, let's go for something that looks like European economic area and let's make sure that the emergency break provisions on freedom of movement and that actually would cut some mustard if it really came to it. I think the problem, though, is that, and this is where the city comes into it, that that is problematic for the city because the city is the last part of the British economy that wants to be regulated without influence. And it's clear if you listen to what Mark Carney said on this subject that that's the Bank of England view too, that actually European economic area isn't going to work for an economy that's got a finance sector like the City of London. But if that is the Treasury view, who is the potential Prime Minister who's going to deliver it? It doesn't seem to me that there's a space between pushing that, bringing down the government and then reopening the whole question. And of course, if you bring down the government, the risk is you get something worse than Theresa May. The the ultimate risk is you get a Corbyn prime ministership. And there must also be a risk that you get um, something that is a block to Brexit altogether. Yeah, I mean, I I think that... It's a very high-stakes game that that Hammond is playing. If if that's what Hammond is doing, that is exactly the problem that he faces. It's clear you can knock Theresa May out of the proceedings if they wanted to, but then what? Yeah, and we've learned from the last couple of years of politics, it would be foolhardy to think that you can game this out so that you get this and then this and then this, because anything could happen. No, and that's where, to the extent that Philip Hammond might be a proxy for George Osborne, that having a man who's been dominated by pretty personal emotion and the desire for personal prevent- revenge is a pretty lethal thing to throw into this mix. by a newspaper editor and the one thing we know about newspaper editors even if they were once politicians is what they like is a story i mean it's like chaos for newspaper editors is, it's wonderful is hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f- are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. So what do you think then about the stuff that's rumbling around about the possibility of a second referendum? So we probably, well, we, you know, there are lots of things we don't agree about, um, but we might agree about this, that I don't think it makes sense, so that, but we probably have different reasons for thinking it doesn't make sense. So the reason I don't think it makes sense is that the problem that I've always had with Brexit is that if you were going to do it, 
you needed to be confident that Britain's political institutions were capable of delivering on it. And I think part of the problem that we're in now is I don't think they are capable of delivering on it because I think we have an unreformed constitution, including the House of Lords, including our voting system, which I think lies behind a lot of the difficulties of British politics, including the way the executive relates to the legislature. In a way, all the kinds of things that the Liberal Democrats have been saying for years we needed to reform, and I think they're probably right. Now the Liberal Democrats are saying we need a second referendum. But the second referendum is admitting that the institutions don't work. And I don't think that a second referendum resolves that question at all. I think, if anything, it makes that question worse because then it does become almost the default that when the institutions don't work, you put it to another referendum rather than reforming the institutions. I don't think Brexit makes sense. I never thought it made sense as an argument without an argument about how you would take back control and that would mean a very different kind of domestic political setup. So I just think if we have another referendum on this question, it's an admission that this isn't going to work under any model, and yet we're stuck because we don't have a political system that's capable of reforming itself. Well, I think the question, first of all, though, to you is, is what do you think the second referendum, what is that argument? I mean, is it What's second, the question? Yeah, what's the question? Is it, do we accept the deal if and when it comes? Particularly, obviously, the economic component of it for Britain leaving the European Union and what the future relationship would be? Or is it simply revisiting the referendum? The in-out question. The in-out question. Because if it's called a second referendum, it's revisiting the in-out question. I agree. And also, it would be a very odd precedent to, to have a referendum on a... Because I don't think there is quite a precedent for that. In a sense, the closest would be, say, the AV referendum or something, where there is a tangible proposal. You're not being offered a yes-no choice, in a sense, about two big, slightly ill-defined options. You're being offered something tangible versus something broad well also say you had a referendum on the terms of the the deal and the deal was rejected then what on earth happens next yeah. so I mean, something could, tangible and something but, Ill, but Ill in defined. this case is there's that it's not only ill-defined you're actually going back to saying to the european union in principle can we renegotiate again and the answer to that is going to be absolutely absolutely no the question about whether britain is in or out of the european Union is a question ultimately that Britain can decide for itself. It can't decide for itself what the future economic relationship can be. So, so do you think, think a second referendum would have to be a rerun of the first referendum question? Do you wish Britain to be in or out of the European Union? Or that you're going to have to have a situation where having had a referendum on rejecting or accepting the deal and the answer was we reject the deal, then we have to have another referendum on what that, in some sense, then means and if one of the options is go back and negotiate with the European Union I think the European Union is going to say absolutely you know you're living in la la land. And on the principle that being laughed at by the Germans doesn't tend to go down well with large sections of the voting public as well as the British political class I mean that presumably would be one of the big arguments that would run in that campaign against doing something to overturn the original decision, which is it would, in a sense, make Britain not just weak, but a kind of laughingstock. Absolutely. Um, and that's the argument I would run if I was a politician. It, it does. And I, I think the, the only way I could see a scenario in which a, a second referendum could take place in a coherent way would be if the European Union were to say, look, you've got a point. There are some problems with the European Union including in relation to freedom of movement, and we need to do some reform. And that we will do some reform, and then you can decide whether you want to be in this reform European Union or not. But the idea that the European Union is going to get to that position 
with any alacrity again. And also prompted just, by us having another referendum. Yeah, it's just not going to happen. I mean, the European Union has got to face some really hard questions, or it should have to face some really hard questions. It will probably simply keep trying to muddle through, as it usually does over the next five to ten years. And you could see a scenario in which, in principle, if Macron got his way, and that what was essentially created was a, a multi-tier European Union where Britain could have a referendum on joining the outer tier of that. But Macron's vision is a very, very long way from being um, realised. And it's not the only vision, let's call it that for the sake of argument, on the table of how the question of a European Union divided by Eurozone states and non-Eurozone states should be dealt with. And it is part of the solipsism of British politics, and it's not just on the Brexit side, it's on the other side too, that somehow, say this referendum happens when, I don't know, in two years' time, that the world will remain static. Yeah. Britain will move on and our politics will be so lively and dynamic and unpredictable and everything else will be frozen, waiting for us to decide what we want to do. We know, never mind the thing that we always mention, the Italian elections and other things coming up, the idea that European politics, we don't even know what's going to happen in Germany. We don't even know what government, we still don't know what government they've got or they're going to have. The idea that European politics would be static over a two-year period while we work out what it is we're doing is absurd. Now, it could go lots of different ways, but it seems on the range of scenarios, the one that you mapped out, which is sort of concerted, rational, calm reform in order to allow Britain a sort of nice way back in, is probably the least likely. Absolutely. And I I think that if you look at it in terms of the position of those who want to undo Brexit or stop Brexit happening... The fundamental weakness that they have is that they have absolutely nothing to say to the problem of Britain's position in the European Union. I don't mean problem in the sense that that means that Britain had to leave the European Union. Let's call it predicament. Is is like what does Britain, as a non-eurozone state with the financial centre of the eurozone, do in a European Union that is committed, at least constitutionally, legally, to moving towards ever closer union? What does Britain do in this? Before we even get on to the issues that are created by the nature of the British economy and its services, the position of services in it and the fact that the four freedoms don't work in relation to um, services, if Britain's going to stay in the European Union or not going to leave the European Union, then some kind of answers to these questions have got to be part of the argument or at least ways of thinking about them that might in the future, in the relatively immediate future, yield some answers. But... There is nothing, I think, in the way in which politicians like Blair and Clegg and Adonis talk about these questions that suggests that they're engaged with that at all. So we're halfway through, I think we're halfway through, so this is Wednesday morning, there's a two-day debate in the House of Lords, I was reading the paper this morning, 196 peers want to speak in it, they get six minutes each, I think half of them have spoken, the other half are coming today, and to your point, I don't think in any of those six-minute speeches, I mean, it's farcical in a sense, and from what I saw of the reporting of it, they're talking about each other in the sense, in six minutes, what can you do? except complain about the person who's just come before you or the person who's (laughs) going to come after you. But as a substantive engagement with the question of Britain's relationship to the European Union, given that the body of opinion in the House of Lords seems to be that they would like, at the very least, to slow this process down and possibly for many of them to stop it, goes back to my point about we don't have the political institutions. We do not have the political institutions to engage with this question, I don't think. Well, I don't know whether it's a question... I mean, this is where we probably don't agree. I'm not sure whether it's a question of we don't have the political institutions or not. It is but the personnel who fill those political institutions are not people who have grappled with this question. Yeah, but those things are related, right? Are they? 
I'm not sure. Don't you? Don't the institu- don't you? Sometimes think- don't the institutions sometimes get the people they deserve? I think a unreformed House of Lords, maybe not. Maybe I mean, first past the post politics, I- two party politics of the kind that where Labour and the Conservatives are trapped, trying to accommodate this sort of range of opinion that they can't. You get types of politics and politicians. I think there are two different things probably going on. I think first of them probably does have, in your sense, some kind of institutional basis in the nature of British politics. And that is is that British politicians for a long time have both political parties who have been in government, leaving aside, I don't think the Liberal Democrats have been particularly different when they were in coalition, but primarily talking about Conservative yeah. Party and Labour Party in government, have tended to deal with substantive policy questions by politically managing them by not actually facing up to them. Now, in some sense, that's not unusual. I think that Merkel's dealt with a lot of these questions. Yeah, I, I was immediately thinking that. But for my argument to work, I'd have to say, look at these other political yeah. institutions that are producing this much more um, considered think, and long-term I think that politics. Merkel's basic way of... But in the long run, Germany does have... There is evidence of that. I think, though, that when it comes to the problem of the predicament that the European Union poses to Germany, you see much the same thing from Merkel, which is is not to look the big picture in the face, to try for a series of tactical improvisations to deal with the problems. But doesn't that then suggest that the problem is not the politicians, it's not the institutions, it's the predicament? I, that's what I was going to say. So I think that the Sorry. problem. Yeah, I think the problem is. The pred- <laughs> I thought we were going to disagree. <laughs> I think the problem is the predicament. I think the problem is the predicament that these problems are generated by the predicament of the European Union. They pose a particular set of predicaments for Britain, as a consequence both of its constitutional tradition, as a consequence of weak support for any notion of ever closer union amongst the electorate, and because of the particular nature of Britain's economy. So basically, the problem is for democratic politicians it is but it's also i think you know beyond that it's a problem of like what the position of europe in the world is it's a it's a you're trying to avoid the word existential (laughs) maybe i'm trying to avoid the world word um you know existential is is that what kind of european union can there be that both deals with the predicaments that europe in the world faces and produces sufficient consent in the democratic politics of the individual member states that constitute the European Union. And these two things quite frequently pull in opposite directions. And the dual problem, I think, is fundamentally compounded by the fact that the European Union is divided by Eurozone states and non-Eurozone states, and that the Eurozone side of it has had to be pretty much completely remade since 2010 to deal with what happened, the Eurozone crisis, and that it's been largely remade without doing anything to the treaty. So that now that there's a big disjuncture but between the legal f- treaty framework in which the Eurozone takes place and the actual day-to-day reality of what the Eurozone is like, not least, or most importantly, the position of the European Central Bank. And I don't think that the politicians in this country or indeed in any other country really have got the um, I don't know whether it is in part the institutional capacity but it's also simply the capacity 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 (laughs) yeah to think about that I think in some sense for you know all the criticisms I make of Macron he he tried the problem he's still trying he tried it's not over yet the problem for for Macron is as I think that you know underpinning it is a delusion about the possibility of French influence in all this so in some sense 
maybe it's not an unwillingness to see because I've got no idea obviously what goes on in his head but that he's presenting something as qualitatively different because it's Macron doing it when actually it's part of a, a long-standing French way of trying to deal with the problem that in those terms is, has thus far failed. Can I ask you, I want to ask one last question and then I think maybe we should come back to this next week when we, I hope we'll have Chris and Chris back with us. So there's also obviously domestic British politics going on at the same time. So Boris Johnson's intervention in this was about the NHS. Theresa May's position is weak for a range of reasons, and there's there's genuine anxieties. There always is in the Conservative Party that the NHS each winter will kind of bring the government down. The other issue that rumbles on and various people say is going to be the central issue in British politics right up to the next election is housing, which is the other great weakness. And there was reporting in the newspapers today about Theresa May's complete failure to deliver on her promises around housing. That would have been part of the Nick Timothy agenda, I think. So this is this is a straight question, sort of binary referendum style question. Some of these are proxies for Brexit. Some of these are simply separate from Brexit. Leaving Brexit aside, do you think the NHS or the housing crisis is a bigger weakness for the Conservative Party over this parliament? I think it's actually the housing crisis. Good. That's it. You don't have to say any more. We'll come back to it next week. The other thing that happened last night was Donald Trump gave his State of the Union address, which we've failed to address in this podcast, but I think we might need to come back to that too. There's a lot going on, as always, in the world. Do follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore, where we'll post links, as always, to things that we think are interesting about the things that we've been talking about. And do join us again next week. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. harder with just us as next we haven't got anyone to bail us out <laughs> if you and me run out of things to say well, there isn't really someone to come in I don't think we're going to run out of things to say I just Good, think I it's hope you lot because I might a question of just like what structure okay we'll do to, May first to, to do it in what, what's driving this current wave or whatever yeah. I'm quite to talk about Andrea Leadsom I okay. think it's quite interesting yeah. I, I always thought that was the weakness of mm. the reshuffle thing which is, if she didn't sack because she's her number one enemy mm. Uh, no, I think Osborne's the number one anyway. Okay, great. So we do. Yeah. <laughs> then, then the, the thing about. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl! Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>